This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Perfection is really unforgiving, in my opinion. And it's really, it can be the enemy of progress, you know. And I think excellence is all about striving. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Sarah Ortloff Khoury is an Art Center alum and director of user experience design at Google. There, she oversees product design for a suite of enterprise apps, including the newly minted Google Hire. Previously, Sarah led user experience design teams at Bank of America and Walmart Labs and distinguished herself in those companies for her revolutionary work in e-commerce. With over 20 years of experience at the intersection of design and technology in Silicon Valley, Sarah continues to blaze the trail for female leadership throughout the technology sector. Today, we discuss Sarah's early interest in literature and how she developed her critical thinking skills by reading the likes of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. She speaks compellingly about her experience as a pioneering woman in technology and about her navigation of Silicon Valley's upper echelons. She is a woman guided always by her commitment to positive change and by her razor-sharp instincts for disrupting the status quo. Well, Sarah, thank you. Thanks for coming and thanks for being here and being part of this. I, I um, typically begin these conversations with questions about who you were as a child. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, really interested in... in uh, uh, maybe a pivotal experience, but really to get at a sense of who you are or who you, who you were, and maybe st- if the child mm-hmm. is alive within you, still there, uh, you know, as uh, what, what the creative spirit was like of the child. And it's a great question and a really interesting way to start out. Um, pretty unique childhood, um, childhood that was uh, very creative. Uh, my father went to Cooper Union. Mm. And uh, started out as a fine artist, and my mother was a self-trained sculptor and a potter. They were born and raised in Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan Hospital. The story goes, the first time they took me out on Bleecker Street to take a walk to the park, a big piece of soot fell on my head. Mm. And they were mortified, and at that moment they decided to leave Manhattan and moved upstate to the Catskill Mountains, just outside of Woodstock, New York. And so for me, um, being raised by artists who are intellectuals from Manhattan and the country was a really interesting combination. Um, We had no TV. We only read, listened to the radio, had great conversations. And I spent most of my time when I wasn't in school, either in athletics, but primarily kind of exploring the nature around me. You know, you could leave my house and walk across the street and there was a huge field that you could walk for miles in. 
you know, the couple of streams in and out of the field. But um, I have a lot of great memories of long afternoons, long summers, long walks, lots of nature. Solitude? Solitude. I had a sister um, to grow up with. And, um, you know, for me, the space and the time and the quietness to explore ideas and to think about things in a deeper way than you do when you're flooded with media and you're kind of bombarded with information like my kids are, um, I think is a real gift. I think it really is a, a unique way to grow up. And because we were living in upstate New York, we chopped wood, we stacked wood, we made bread, we fed chickens. <laughs> so this is very kind wow. of you know, bucolic, uh, yeah, I was gonna say that. almost like farm homestead kind of lifestyle. And your parents had studios there? Your dad had a studio? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both my parents had studios and, um, they made their living in interesting ways. I mean, one of the fun things for my sister and I, uh, when my parents had a boutique at a point, we went to Morocco with them in the seventies when we were probably 10 and nine, which is very unusual. And those kinds of very adventurous kind of unique experiences really defined my childhood, you know, being from this more urbane family. My grandmother was a painter, um, an illustrator for Lord & Taylor. Um, She's collected, I think, she's in the Walker Museum, Carol Blanchard. My other grandmother was an illustrator for Vogue. Um, So there's just all of this professional artist, you know, exploratory, you know, wandering artist and can you recall a little bit of, a, of the inner life of the time of the child? Of I, I get the ex, I get the external stimuli, but yeah. the, the your own sense of your own creative spirit. Yeah, when I was talking about the unique opportunity to really think and to um, have time to build ideas from what you're thinking about or learning about was one of the most important things to me. I think my my dad and I used to always talk about the New York Times pretty much daily. And the inner life for me was one of critical thinking, you know, a lot of critical thinking. I'm reading this. I'm seeing that. I'm comparing those two things. What am I taking away from it? You know, um, I got a scholarship to go to a boarding school um, after I did my elementary work at uh, Buxton, which is a great, it's a progressive school in Williamstown, Mass, Mm. right near the Clark Art. And um, the reason I bring that up is it was a performing arts school and um, a great kind of humanities school. And, you know, for high schoolers, they were having us read Anna Karenina, you know, Crime and Punishment. These are not small books to be reading. And I remember reading The Good Soldier by Upton Sinclair and discovering that a narrator could be unreliable. You know, so these are the kinds of things that I found really interesting. I'm reading a whole story. I'm believing everything the narrator says. And then toward the end of the story, you realize he's kind of mad and what he's saying isn't true. And everything you believed about what he's told you about his story isn't true. And isn't that an interesting component of literary art that you can take someone all the way through a story and then just kind of change it and turn it around and get you to think about the character very differently. Well, there's a life lesson for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think for me, Mm. my first love was really humanity's reading and understanding the construct of books and stories and how you could really influence how someone interprets content through the way you design a story. And does does your love of reading persist? Yes. 
It yeah. absolutely does. Yeah. It was it innate? Was it, um, is it just something that comes naturally to you, or was it something about the environment, the family, the school, mm-hmm. the soot on your face? What yeah, yeah. Was yeah. The, what was it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I was raised by intellectuals that were um, protesting the Vietnam War. Right. You know, and uh, my dad burned his draft card in Union Square. I mean, they were not minor protesters, and they were real activists. And I think my sister and I really were taught to question authority, um, taught to question facts, not to take things at face value. And I think through the dialogue and debates I would have with my dad over the New York Times, the fun of that, kind of the um, reward of that kind of debate was really clear to me. I think that's really what cultivated that interest in critical thinking. Right. So there's a genetic line from your grandmother of creativity, Mm -hmm. and there's the, the... Creativity of your parents. There's the the uh, position and critical stance your parents took. It, you can see there's a line to your mm-hmm. your life now, your career now, your the creativity and question mm-hmm. critical question asking. That is so much a part of what you do right, and what you love. Yeah, I, I really think about my role um, as a creative leader, as a design leader, really, as being part. You know creative thinker and explorer and part executive decision maker or problem solver. And it's the synthesis of those two things that I think really makes me effective. Um, And I think that, you know, as you talk about it, I realize it was partly my upbringing, but it is also, I think, being in the Bay Area where you had this great fusion of technology, logic, you know, systems, data, and creativity, art, performance, you know, um, invention, um, very strong cultures in San Francisco, hard to find kind of two opposable forces like that, that have been colliding in some cases, but in many cases, um, coming together in a way that's new, um, you know, spawning all kinds of innovation out of the Bay Area. And then just to continue your educational line, so then then to, to Pratt for your undergraduate work... And then yeah. the most exciting thing happened is you came to Art Center. But how right. did you how did you find your way to Art Center? <laughs> yeah. So and, um, and by the way, the, I heard a rumor that you were also accepted to Yale. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I had but you relatives. chose Art Center though. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, well, I don't think I went all the way through the whole process. You know, my aunt had been the art history registrar registrar at um, Yale, and I had visited Cranbrook, and I had gone through the whole process. And my now husband, then boyfriend, Mike Corey wasn't as satisfied with the industrial design program um, at Pratt and decided he wanted to transfer to Art Center. And he started talking to me about Art Center. I really knew nothing about it. And I was really thinking about what I wanted to do with my master's. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a designer and I knew that I wanted to build and make things. But I didn't really want to be in a shop, you know, in the way he did. And I kind of had exposure to that from, you know, being with him. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't really want to go farther into the theoretical realm that you might go into at Cranbrook or, you know, the more classical, traditional realm you might go into at Yale. And so I was open to this idea of going out and visiting Art Center. And when I came out to visit the school, I knew this is where I was going to be. Um, just the openness to hearing what I was interested in doing with my graduate time and the willingness to kind of follow my instinct that what I was interested in was going to become something larger 
And in a very lovely email that you wrote to me, um, you you cited, and I was struck by this, the the, the um, celebration and precision of craft mm-hmm. as being an essential part of your education here. It's, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I think the rigor and the focus on craft at Art Center really appealed to my work ethic. You know, here was a place that demanded not only excellent thinking, but excellent execution. It's it's striking to me because I um, one of the ways in which I talk about an art center, art center education, which I think is one of its most brilliant qualities, is the insistence on skill, mm-hmm. on great craft, not for its own sake, but because it's the foundation that leads to a kind of artistic freedom. Absolutely. That the greater the discipline, the greater the freedom is a kind of relationship that seems in every studio I walk into and in every crit that I attend, that attention to craft, that attention to detail is in gr- grounding our students in that, a kind Absolutely. of 10,000-hour expertise, to quote Gladwell, right, that, that gets them grounded. And the relationship between having that skill and being able to express in the freest and most complex and most interesting ways is a, it's a really exciting relationship. And yeah. I think that the pedagogy of Art Center is so fundamental to that. So it was why I was so struck when you mm-hmm. wrote that, that that's that's what you remembered, uh, obviously, at that particular well, moment. And I think writing, that's really you know? what served me well in the beginning of my career. Um, precision, excellence execution, rigor, were all completely missing from the design stage of software at the time that I came into it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about my career is I was only a practitioner for maybe two or three years. I rose to leadership positions really quickly. And I think it had to do with having a sense of how to do things that was very informed by my experience here. You do them as well as you possibly can, and you, you know, exhaust all the possible solutions to a problem as quickly and rigorously as you can, you know, to to get to the essence of the problem that you're solving. And then that freedom or that liberation into some kind of a solution will come. Um, It's interesting, though, I would want to make the distinction, though, that um, Art Center didn't expect perfection. You know, I think excellence is really different than perfection. Perfection is really unforgiving, in my opinion, and it's really, um, it can be the enemy of progress, you know, and I think excellence is all about striving and, um, like I said, working hard and being rigorous and exhausting all the possibilities to get to the essence of a solution, and then again, rigorously executing um, it's it's that's an interesting nuance, Sarah, and I, you could probably relieve a lot of anxiety among a lot of students in this <laughs> building right now uh, for them to be able to understand that distinction, which I'm not sure we make as clear as we might. So let's fast forward a bit to your career um, at uh, well, you went from startups to B of A, is that right? Yeah, to so Walmart to Google, is yeah, that the, that's kind of the, an interesting journey. You know, I started out working in little startups. At that time, startups didn't have seed funding. They didn't have venture capitalists involved. It was really like you like, just didn't get paid for a while. Just wood, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did that because I felt like while uh, those opportunities were not necessarily safe or kind of guaranteed to get me to the next stage or to pay my rent, they were the most free experimental places to work. And um, 
and again, that's where I brought a lot of the structure and the rigor that I uh, learned here. Maybe two or three companies like that where you're putting your heart and your soul into not only the business but also the product. Um, I wanted to take everything I had learned about how to build teams in all kinds of circumstances to build a wide range of products to client-side experiences. So I kind of used my consulting and startup time to dive into different vertical areas that I thought were interesting, banking being one of them, retail being one of them, you know, insurance, healthcare, what have you, just getting a taste of what it's like to work with those problems, what the mindset of the consumers or customers in that space were, what kind of problems we were solving. Um, so decided to go client-side and take the kind of practice um forming and team building and um, process for making products to these large traditional businesses that were basically being disrupted by all these startups and firms that were coming up with whole new business models and whole new ways to attract and engage customers. So, you know, B of A was a great um, experience for me in that looking at a problem as complex as multi-channel Banking, So you've got the ATMs, you've got the mobile devices, the online experiences, the in-branch experiences, all affecting someone's sense of what it's like to interact with that business, all affecting how the organizations have to change how they're working together. Um, and in those environments, uh, both at B of A and at Walmart Labs, I was drawn to, or these kinds of projects found me, strategy projects. Um, so we want to have an online banking presence. We want to have a mobile presence. We want to have something distinctive and delightful, but that can't just be transactional, you know? So did a lot of work to envision things like the future of banking. Um, did a lot of work at Walmart Labs to envision the future of shopping, where there really are no physical boundaries between people and the things that they want and stores become less of a place to go buy something and more of a place to move products around. Which was a kind of monumental discovery of yours, right? That you were asked to do the walmart.com experience for 2016, which is now passed. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I, I, this is probably like 2013 and that sounded, you know, three years is usually a, a good time uh, trajectory for vision. And yeah, I think that's a good one to cue off of, um, I think it's interesting as a creative leader, you'll be asked to do something very tangible and concrete. And once you get into the problem space, you end up really reframing what the problem really is. And right. so in this case, I was asked You to, realize that the narrator wasn't telling you the exactly, truth. Exactly. Yeah, good that's one. Right. Um, and, you know, I, we call that design thinking now. Um, Indeed. But uh, yeah. at the time, I was really thinking about, well... In the future, why are we even talking about a website if the whole vision of an endless aisle or a kind of um, store with no boundaries is what we're talking about? Why would we talk about one channel? Wouldn't we be thinking about how to bring all that together? And how much was that your discovery and how much was that a listening to the, the customer? Well, because what does the customer know in a way? Right. And how do you how do you serve as a kind of translator for things that a customer's never really understood? It's like the old adage of the designer's able to identify problems that the user doesn't even realize exist, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, without getting too much into the details, um, the kind of store where you can buy just about anything 
is a really interesting proposition to think about. Um, there are things that you want to look at and touch and hold before you buy them, and there are things that you buy every month that you know you want. And so in an environment like that, you have customers saying, I want to go to the store. I don't want to go to the store. And, and what we ended up doing was really looking at the behaviors and attitudes and segmenting into um, you know, a set of behaviors and attitudes that helped us understand that mass audience in a finer detail way. And so the idea was to allow people to either qualify what they're going to buy in the store with the online channel or navigate the store with their mobile device. So one of the things that I really tried to um, surface was you would never want to shop a huge store through a mobile device in a store. And there's a high likelihood that the inventory is not going to be the same. So that's going to be a very frustrating experience. So what is the problem in the store? The problem in the store is it's a huge store and no one can find their way around. And what are the people in the store spend all their time doing? Telling people where the things are. You know, so this is where technology can really play a role in helping someone navigate the store and allowing the people that are in the store to do things more valuable than tell people where things are. So it is really asking customers, sure, what they want, but I find that observed research is much more powerful. So watching what people do and maybe and asking as a few a, questions. Right, and serving as a kind of translator at some yeah. point, right? And then or I was... Interpreter maybe yeah, is a exactly. better word. Yeah, exactly. To your yeah. point, I was also really listening to the organization. So you had these physical store, you know, and, and digital store forces um, coming, you know, sometimes at odds and sometimes together. And what I was able to do really through storytelling, um, building things like vision videos, was galvanize all those different parties to see that our one unified goal was to serve this customer that had all these different ways of behaving and that it wasn't really about whose revenue was recognized or not, that we all played a part and that, it, you know. It's wonderful. It's so it's brilliant. interesting because that was really about kind of painting a picture of what it would be like to shop in the future. To what extent can we gather up that story and understand what UX design is for you? <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting piece to think about, too, of the story in that when I started in the early 90s, UX design was really um, in service of technology or product. And I often got asked to make background screens or buttons, which really graded me the wrong way um, because I was much more interested in what is this product. And so um, UX, by the time I was working client side, had become a really valuable asset, um, meaning UX had a seat at the table to talk about how to build a strategy to make a business more and more relevant over time and sustainably relevant over time. Um, and so the function of UX has changed a lot from the time that I started till now, um, especially you know now being at Google after joining a startup that was acquired by Google. Um, the role of UX in an environment where there's access to so much data um, and there's the opportunity to develop an intuition and an imagination about what to do with all that technology, um, which in the end 
results in experiences. It's it's really quite different. It's kind of striking to to hold on one side what I'm thinking about and doing now, and on the other side what I was thinking about and doing in the '90s. It's it's an absolute, you know, radical change in the role of a UX designer. Um, I think that one of the most interesting things I'm thinking about now as it relates to the role of UX is as we start interacting more and more with assistants, with um, bots in our chat rooms, with automated reminders, you know, with kind of with working alongside machines versus interacting with intersection points with machines um, and systems I think the role of the designer really has evolved to uh, one where you're trying to figure out not how a person works cognitively, not how a person thinks about doing things. So, you know, typically the UX um, heuristics and kind of measures of quality or success that I had come up with were, you know, task success. I can complete this task. I can find this, you know, piece of content. And when you're interacting with systems and they have a voice, you can't help. I mean, people are hardwired to put a face to that voice. And you start thinking about the relationship you have with that system. And does that system know what you're asking? Is it getting the answer right? Is it frustrating you because it's making you look stupid because you can't find the right thing by asking? Um, You know, I think we're really starting to think about human experience um, versus user experience. You know, I, I know which one I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, another another way too, which was striking when you were talking before too, is I mean, how much projection is a part of how we experience each mm-hmm. other, right? That is a very natural kind of thing. We are always doing that with one another. Um, and here you were talking really about how, what we project onto s- machines and assistants. And, you know, it's, 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 it's fascinating. I, you know, the, the, GPS voice itself is a fascinating right. kind of thing. I always imagined that we could have a lot of accidents if, you know, the GPS voice was in your mother's voice or something right. like that. And you started having I'm a kind listening. of fight with her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. You never listen to me. I told you you should go exactly. left, not right. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, designers are going to be facing problems like voice design. You know, what is the tone of the assistant and how responsive is it? And, you know. How do you? And how does it trigger the user's projections? Really, and yeah, right? and how do you yeah, develop a rapport? And how yeah. do you develop trust? And um, I think that's something that creative people have a real opportunity to innovate um, around that idea that you know it's well known and it's written about. There was an article in the New Yorker maybe last year about the um, empathy gap in Silicon Valley. You know that there's this kind of um, lack of understanding and empathy for people who struggle with technology or for how people work together or how technology gets in the way of working together. And I think designers have a real opportunity there to um, examine and um, surface the importance of empathy in design. Um, So not just the research, but really trying to put yourself in the shoes of another person who isn't you know, very comfortable with technology. You know, I think um, at Google, you know, we're thinking a lot about the next billion users, not the people who are using technology now, but the next billion people who will be using technology. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other set of problems, Mm -hmm. a whole other set of opportunities. You know, and as you speak, and I think about, you know, how we um, have this 
very sacred challenge of educating future artists and designers how important those books become again mm -hmm. and that thinking becomes again and that critical discourse about human experience mm -hmm. and how central that is in addition to the great skill, in addition to you know, the, the, the increased sensitivity of the individual, but really the, to have that opportunity to expose oneself to how people have thought about human experience. Really. Yeah, and that's it's really what I mean so by EQ. Essential. I really mean yeah. by like emotional intelligence, you yeah. know, really bringing that to a very But it also goes to critical thinking beyond emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, it allows you to frame questions in the best possible way that can open up possibilities. Yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing more rewarding for me than getting through the original premise of an assignment and coming up with a much more compelling problem to solve. Right, which is, to circle back, the great Walmart story, right? <laughs> yeah, is yeah. You took it so, from walmart.com and you opened it up to all of yeah, Walmart, I, which is, you know, like... Which was very on, cheeky, you know, by the way, and pretty daring to come back to the CEO of the business and say, I'm going to show you... It's not a big you, enough question for me. Right, right yeah. and I'm going to show you a bunch of work that has nothing to do with the website. got a couple of things of that, that, that you've said that it would be fun for you to riff on a little bit. Okay. One is, um, I think, a tweet you put out that says you're the product of your own narrative. Mm -hmm. Discuss. <laughs> well, you know, an interesting angle on this one, I think, is, um, you know, being a person from, you know, the country, from a non-technical background, being classically trained, kind of discovering technology and the opportunities for design and technology to be fused in college, and then going to the Bay Area in the 90s. I mean, very uh, challenging to know your place in the world, right? And I think my conviction around that thought has to do with building an inner narrative that this is all going to lead to a great career, this is all very primitive right now. It's all very unknown and very uncertain right now. And I feel uncomfortable and I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. And that narrative was very important to me in the early part of my career. Um, and to restate what you were saying earlier, I, you, in this case, needed to learn to trust the narrator. Oh, good one. <laughs> Which is your own, right? Your own instincts there, right? Yeah, I think, you know, some people call it imposter syndrome, you know, and it's a little bit overused as a term, but um, trusting yourself is a really key part of So it's the story, right? So it's the story you imagine for yourself. It's another maybe way of talking about a, a kind of ambition. It's, yeah. It's since you are so passionate about story, there is a story. Yeah, and I, I belong here. You know, that was very much part of my story. Um, I mean, you have to imagine, you know, not only was I a creative and a designer, I was a woman, and I'm in this very foreign territory, working primarily with engineers, primarily with people from the Valley, didn't talk their language. Um, and it was really important for me to establish a confidence in my value. And I think and that came from your narrative is what you're saying. I think so. That you, that, that, you, that you wrote, quote unquote, wrote for yourself. And did the narrative change as you mm -hmm. experienced what you experienced? Um, yeah, I mean. Did it change 
Was it a different story when you stumbled and fell? Was yeah, it? and I think that's a you know the whole thing about change. Um, a good a good illustration of that is uh, you know having come up through consulting and then come up through client side work and um, building practices, building great teams. You know, getting to the point where you know I had a couple, you know, maybe a hundred people on my team globally, you know, working as an executive design leader, um, getting pretty comfortable. You know, I've, I've got this. I'm leading teams at scale globally. I'm at the table with strategy. I'm influencing. Um, at that point in time, I chose to change the narrative and disrupted myself, basically, um, and chose to leave a very you know, well-established position and a job that was going just fine to, you know, take that 200-person kind of milieu of leading a large design team and switch that up and join a tiny startup. So I think I was maybe 49 when I decided to do this, to go back to startups. (laughs) Wow. And the narrative was, what am I afraid of? Why am I on this path of security? Um, I started to kind of want to disrupt that comfort, um, you know, to get uncomfortable again. You know, so you so you built the narrative to give you confidence, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you deliberately disrupted that narrative and changed it to undermine that confidence so maybe you could go deeper into something. Is that an accurate reflection of what you're saying? It is. And I think for me, um, coming to that point in my life was, you know, is my narrative that I started out in this field when it was nascent and, you know, was a pioneer building these practices and defining how to do this work and then bringing it client side and scaling it, or is it that I build products? You know, so I think when you become an executive design leader, there's um, there's a great Chinese proverb that talks about going an inch deep and a mile wide. So I really felt like I was hitting that plateau of I was very influential across the organization, but I wasn't deep on the product anymore. And I missed that. I mean, you think about it, like, what do we do every day for at least eight hours by the time we're 20, five days a week? We work. So it struck me, isn't it strange that we're spending all of this energy and and we're building this industry around designing experiences for consumers where the people that are using these products might use the product for like 10 minutes a month or maybe two minutes a day or in increments of a minute or two at a time. And there's kind of this opportunity to address a range of design problems for products that people are using for eight or 10 hours a day. So that really got to be an interesting question for me, and it and it felt scary enough, different enough, um, and unknown enough for me to bite, basically. And and so I joined the team, and I went from having you know a hundred plus designers to having no designers. And um, but it was a change of your own agency. That's mm-hmm. that, that's interesting, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, um, as was the original narrative that you built for yourself mm-hmm. to build that kind of confidence to, mm-hmm. to work your way through. Um, you and I were talking about failure earlier. I guess that leads to the question, in what way did failure enter and did failure disrupt the, the narrative? Um, yeah. Not necessarily of your own agency, or maybe you think about it that way, that it was still your own agency. Yeah, so if you think about it, I had kind of gotten to this place in my career where I was very confident, 
confident enough to disrupt myself, change that narrative. Yeah. Well, I got my wish, you know, day yeah. one. I'm sure you had moments of my out of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I I walk into the office the first day, and you know, I realize I really am going to be working with 30 engineers um, for a while well, as I build a team. And I'm not in a large company where there's general knowledge about what design is or how design works. And so I started to get a feeling really early that nothing I had done before would be what I would do here. And that started to kind of shake my confidence a bit because, again, the way you work and how you solve a problem is really essential you know, to making progress. So I had to find uh, new ways to engage the team, and I really had to think differently about the team I was going to build. I want to move on and talk a little bit about change. And um, half of the Art Center mission statement is influence change. And mm-hmm. so much of what we're interested in in this podcast is to understand how, um, how people talk about how they've influenced change. Mm-hmm. Um, with you, I'm... Not only interested in that, but I'm also interested in whether it or how it relates to your own very strong sense of intuition Mm. and how your intuitive self has led you. Um, And is there a relationship between following your own intuition and the extent or relevance or meaningfulness of the change that you've created? It's a really great putting it. When I'm thinking about working in a problem with people or trying to influence change, I'm usually listening to my gut more than my brain. You know, what is the problem here? What is the pain point? What are we trying to do? Those are not intellectual questions. They're much more based in emotion and relation and um, finding a way to cast a path toward a solution is almost the only thing that has to happen to move a whole group toward that solution. And when people can follow your thinking and they can feel the kind of conviction that comes from your intuition, it's a lot more compelling than rote facts or industry reports or what have you. I mean, that's vision, right? That's when people really, they look at you, I've seen it, you know, they look it's, at you and they know that right. you know what you're doing. Well, it's it's vision, <laughs> but it's intuitive. Mm-hmm. So it's not spelled out yet, mm-hmm. right? You and that's have, what I mean is that they're willing to kind of follow you and and take that leap because they can see and discover it in the making. Yes, yes, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, that is about creating an environment for sure. Yeah, because I think I think people often mistake vision for ah, I've got it all pictured in my yeah. mind. Just follow me to that. But that's not what leadership vision <laughs> no. is, is it? No. No, in fact, I think it's more about I am willing to put my neck out on the line and form a hypothesis that we can start with, basically. Um, And, you know, one of the things that is really important and I spent a lot of time doing is building teams that are very diverse so that when you're kind of setting that hypothesis up and you're bringing people together, you're getting this richness of ideas. You're getting this diversity of ideas really, really early. And then it's really up to you to curate against whatever the objective is, what ideas surface and have potential to Mm -hmm. change the game, Mm -hmm. you know, to really be inventive, not just innovative. 
it's not easy to get people who are that different to work together. It's really interesting. You, you need to kind of, you know, foster a sense of debate and a sense of, you know, discord that is productive. Uh, you don't want everyone agreeing with each other. You're not, you're not going to get to anything really interesting Like they that do way. in colleges, for example. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, again, growing up in an environment where debate was not only allowed, it was invited. Right. So I'm going to conclude our conversation really with um, a, a question. That's, it's, it's a big question, but yeah, I know you're speaking this weekend at the, the Women in ID Forum that mm -hmm. we're having at Art Center. And uh, I, I do want to invite you to reflect on your experience as a woman in mm -hmm. a world of technology, of startup, of these major companies that you were in, and to offer some of your own sort of internal thoughts about <laughs> what that, that, that is, yeah, you what know, that's been for you. I wouldn't say I've had an experience where you know, sexism or exclusion or, you know, inclusivity have not been an issue for me. Um, but I really, I try to talk to the people that I mentor and, you know, even to my own daughter about as a leader, it's not, you know, what you do when all the conditions are perfect that matters or that anyone remembers. It's, it's what you do when you're facing adversity and you're facing a situation that's not perfect that matters. And, so I really try to take a pioneering attitude with that. You know, um, I don't really ask to do the strategic projects that I'm doing, for example. Um, and I work in a way with the organizations that I'm part of that is uniquely mine, but I think also universally more female, if you will, which is to build connections you know, to build trust and to um, demonstrate that you have the goal of the team or the project or the company at heart, um, that you're motivated by that and by that only. I think it brings a genuineness and kind of an authenticity to how you contribute that is disarming. It isn't about ego and it's not about deciding. It's about solving the problem in the best way you possibly can. Now, I wouldn't say I have met plenty of men that come from that same place, but I, I will say that um, that's probably how I've cut through those obstacles is, is not getting caught up in the dynamic that could be frustrating for me is just more blasting past the uh, obstacle um, in a way that's disarming and not male. And yet it's also um, interestingly about, I'm, I'm so struck by, what you said just a minute ago that you don't really ask permission. Right. Um, that's something that probably comes from being brought up by parents that were kind of anti-authoritarian, but also who did all kinds of things with their lives and, and did just fine, you know, and, and didn't ask permission and didn't have a roadmap. And um, I think that's a really important thing that I'll be talking about this weekend with the Women in ID Forum is, is, cultivating a sense of boldness and and really making your voice heard and not waiting for someone to ask you what you think and and yet having the right level of humility and you know a very strong sense of authenticity um because you know breaking rules and not asking permission with no real authenticity or kind of altruism is not a good idea <laughs> but and i can surmise from our conversation today but where where does the boldness come from 
Well, I think, you know, I've always been an outspoken person. But again, I think somewhat from conditioning and somewhat just from our culture, certainly someone who wants to please the people I work with, you know, and and so I think the boldness and the letting go of wanting to please the people that I'm working with came more mid-career for me. So maybe struggling a little bit more in the earlier part of my career with where do I fit in and kind of developing that confidence and then realizing at a certain point, maybe it's because I got into leadership positions earlier than most people did, that when you become a leader and when you become a leader that's respected and followed, you start to know that leaders generally don't know what they're doing um, day to day that it is a highly intuitive and instinctive role and that generally speaking, your gut instinct is the right thing to do and, and to develop a sense of boldness about my gut instinct, about my intuition was, you know, a very pivotal part of my career. But a gut instinct that's as much about nurturing a community too, creating an environment of listening you know, this comes from my work as a theater director mm-hmm. that, you know, you come with an idea, but as you engage with the community of actors and designers, yes. you are, it, it, it changes and it morphs. And the, 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 the real project is to hand it over to that community Absolutely. ultimately, which is exactly how I think about being a college president as well. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, so there is a, a level of, um, detachment from the solution, the specific outcome that I've definitely gotten comfortable with, but a, a boldness around how to motivate people to do things they don't think they can do, a boldness around how to compel people to think in a way that they weren't thinking, a boldness around believing in an idea that other people may feel kind of um, reluctant to support um, is just a real gift, I think, you know, and, and I think it's something that we should be helping students at least see the necessity for speaking up and making your voice heard when you have an idea that you think is a strong idea is really how you start. And what you, what I think you notice and what I noticed is you're usually right. <laughs> you're usually right, at least about that starting point. And people start to trust you. And then, like you said, you become a leader who is focused on cultivating a team that can operate without you. And there's a great saying that leadership is what people do when you're not in the room. I often talk about my goal is building teams that are self-organizing. That the way that we work and the um, respect that we have for each other and the talent that we represent as a whole is something that has a life of its own. You know, and, and to treat it with respect and to treat it as a treasure and to... Not unlike parenting. You yes, know. Yeah, in many yeah, ways. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I've really committed myself to as someone who is a pioneer in tech as a woman is mentoring and speaking and embracing the community of women that are out there now. And I think that's really important, not only for the people that are coming up, but also for me to stay in touch with that and to be... Um, a resource uh, to people who are finding their way. Um, I think it's really an important focus area for me. But, I mean, you sustained your who you are and your humanity and mm-hmm. your sense of purpose throughout it all. Well, I won't say it's been easy, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be vulnerable for a minute it, there. I can't imagine it would have been. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's a, you know, there's a spirit of invention and a spirit of 
creativity and um, joy that has served me really well is is really the best way I can say it. That's a great place for us to conclude. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.